Hi everyone, and welcome to Aval Cafe. My name is Brian Hostler, founder of Strongers Consulting, based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. I'm joined as always by my co-host. Hi everyone, I'm Carolyn Kamen, an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, BC, coming to you from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations territory. This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kind you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators. This podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, longtime practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as they have an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you. Hello, listeners. We are here with you again. Um, Brian and I are coming to you on the morning of uh, recording this March 19th. Uh, 2020, uh, which means that I have been in mostly self-isolation for the last week, uh, as Canada has declared a uh, coronavirus pandemic. Um, but we're we're coming to you with uh, with our episode. Uh, we will hopefully also have, I think, coming out after this one. Um, I don't know what our editing time frame is, but uh, we're also working on a very special episode um, that is our response to. Um, what's happening globally right now. I'm doing a check-in, and so that will come out either shortly before or shortly after this episode. But in this episode, which we have been planning for a couple weeks, which I, or well, a little while now, I'm very, very excited about um, the guest that we have with us today is uh, Halil Bittar, um, who I, I think I got to meet in person for the first time. I think it was at, um, yeah, for, we, I've, saw you a little bit, Halil, on Twitter, and then I got to meet you in person at this year's um, AEA conference in November. Um, and actually, I think I met you the night before you uh, had your panel, um, which was, it was just awesome. I was like, oh, here's this cool person I met last night, and oh, wow, they're talking about the most amazing things. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to introduce Halil a little bit, um, and then also let you introduce yourself. So Halil, currently the chair of the Eval Youth Global Network, um, working uh, with 10 years of experience as an internal and external evaluator and monitoring and evaluation specialist with um, many different national and international organizations and government institutions, um, working in areas including education, youth empowerment, women's empowerment, labor, refugee response, and humanitarian interventions. Um, and Halil, um, pretty amazing person, also talking a lot about uh, activism in evaluation and young and emerging evaluators and why evaluators need to be involved in promoting social justice and equity. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode today. So thank you very much for being with us, Halil. And um, yeah, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners um, by way of introducing yourself? Uh, thank you, Caroline and Brian. I'm really glad to join you in this uh, uh, amazing uh, podcast. Uh, I've been listening for it, to it for some time now, and always you have great episodes, and I did not know that one day I can be on it, so this is really exciting, and I'm very uh, glad to, to speak with you and connect also with your audience. Um, I think you said very much a uh, great introduction about what I do, uh, just to say that I'm from Palestine, from the Middle East, and currently in Germany. Uh, completing my PhD here, but I work often between Europe and the Middle East as well, here and there. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. That's awesome to have you on the podcast, Alil. I'm so glad that we were able to uh, to coordinate this. This I think this is also one of our trickier time zone scheduling ones. Yeah, because we're I'm on the the west coast of Canada. Uh, Brian's in the middle of Canada, and, and you're in Germany right now. Um, but we found we did find we found a sliver of time that was reasonable for all of us. Um, so you had given one of the, um, part, part of one of the keynote panels at AEA and I'm just, I pulled it up on my phone even, I have a, a picture here, um, of some of the, the slides that you presented with some of the things you were saying that I saw go like viral basically within our, our hashtag, our AEA hashtag, um, the things that you were saying resonated so strongly with me and also so strongly with, a, with a lot of the people who, uh, were there um, that were things that I swear, you know, even five years ago would have been so um, alien to hear at, at a 
you know, large evaluation conference. So one of the things you had this slide that said, um, you know, young evaluators are not shying away from putting on their activist hat along with their evaluator hat. That was one thing that really stood out to me. Um, and then you also said, evaluators are not methodologically dogmatic. We embrace mixed methods, um, culturally responsive approaches, and understand that rigor is not a property of technical methods, but rather of evaluative thinking. Like these are just like, to me, revolutionary kinds of, of statements about we're doing things differently um, and the field is changing. And I just, I would love to hear your thoughts about, you know, young evaluators and, and activism and why, why are we different? Thank you, Karen, for uh, for that question. It's very important. I think, uh, in general, first about AA 2019 last year, I felt the whole conference, in a way, highlighted uh, these issues and embraced uh, social justice issues in general in the conference. I've attended a few other presentations and talks, also discussed the same topic. I have not, unfortunately, attended AEA before. But this time I felt it. I felt uh, the community is really paying attention uh, to these issues. Maybe that's why it resonated as well with many people, because uh, the whole discussion reached a certain level of maturity and recognition that maybe allowed for for what I presented perhaps to resonate with people. Um, For me, it's something that uh, I have been... Uh, also talking about for a few years, maybe perhaps mainly or even a little bit before before I joined Evaluate. And I joined Evaluate in the very beginning, the first meeting for Evaluate, when it was launched in Nepal during the second global evaluation forum that was organized by Eval Partners Network and uh, the International Organization for Cooperation in Evaluation. And uh, during the presentation at EA, which I'm grateful really for Michael Quinn-Button and uh, the president of AEA, then Tessie, to allow, to allow for, for, for this uh, presentation, is that uh, I felt there were trends that I really seen uh, throughout those uh, few years working with young and emerging evaluators. And... Uh, I started with maybe three trends. I can say them very quickly now, but because they lead to the third trend. First, that there are more young evaluators today than ever before, uh, simply put. And the second is that young and emerging evaluators are cooperating in unprecedented ways as well. And the third, that what you, Caroline, has, uh, you have uh, highlighted, that young evaluators are not shying away from putting on their activist hat along with their evaluator hat. This is something that um, you can see young evaluators are really strongly advocating for. Uh, perhaps, yes, we many, evaluate, many young and emerging evaluators don't write books about evaluation right now, uh, unfortunately, but uh, not in the theory sense, but in the practice and on social media. You see a lot of uh, discussion about these issues. And most of the time, of course, I'm not an ageist. I'm not saying only young and emerging evaluators are doing this. Senior evaluators, evaluators from all ages are doing. But you can see a trend uh, within the, this group of young evaluators who are concerned about this issue. And perhaps it's so much related to, to the whole activism and young people uh, activism. They are really sparking uh, great movements all around the world for social justice, for um for, for environmental sustainability, uh, for social equity and integration at some point. So this is, this, this is what really sparked the presentation uh, and the point I've seen that I've seen on the ground, how young evaluators imp- uh, are working on this. To me, it's important because since I started working on evaluation a few years ago, I've seen that I am not satisfied with merely going to a project or uh, a program to evaluate and use the DACA criteria and say the program sustainable or not, effective or not. I felt there is something needed more than as an evaluator to do uh, than merely some value judgment about if the program succeeded or not. Our role as evaluators is beyond that. It's, It's beyond just saying good or bad and that's it. We have to explain why, but also we have a social justice perspective to to be accountable to people who are underrepresented or not represented at all in certain intervention that we are evaluating. Yeah, and that reminds me what you were just saying about um, 
um, our, our previous episode with um, uh, Nora Murphy-Johnson, Andy Johnson, and Chris Corrigan, we were talking about that, how um, I think Nora said, uh, had a line about uh, she doesn't want to be evaluating just for you know whether a project worked or not. She wants to be evaluating to to create change. And um, Andy was talking about too, like you know, if we're just evaluating to uh, make a, a donor feel happy about about the money they're spending, you know, there's a lot easier ways to do it. That so we there seems to be kind of a, a feeling in the field, or at least among a, a, a segment of the field, that we could be doing this evaluation work not just to check off a box or to keep funders happy, but to contribute to something, something more, something that's, that's leading to, to more, to more change. So um, why do you think that is like what, what's kind of maybe pushing the field in this direction, or at least some people in the field in this direction right now? Hmm. Uh, I, I do agree that there is a general feeling. You can tell that it's growing by the way, this whole issue about social justice consideration and even approach in evaluation is not new. I'm sure you are aware that, you know, even in, in the 90s or even the beginning of the 90s, there are great authors, theorists in evaluation, actually. Uh, one example is uh, Ernest uh, House, who wrote the whole, uh, many publications, actually, and many books that advocating for the importance of social justice, inclusion in, in, in evaluation, and actually considered and I can quote what something he said that he argues that evaluation is never value neutral. It should uh, tilt in the direction of social justice by specifically addressing the needs and interests of the powerless. At some point, he even says that evaluators can themselves in, in the role of spokespersons of, uh, of uh, representatives of the poor and the powerless. And so it's not a new, it's always, it has always been there. Uh, but at some point, also, actually, credit to House, he talks about you know different uh, uh, different sides of how evaluation really, when we work, it takes us. For example, he talks about clientism, where taking the client interest as the ultimate consideration, mm-hmm. or uh, contractualism, adhering to to the contract, or many many. Um, I can say this word now, managerialism. Uh, or some, some, sometimes he talk about even you know just the whole obsession some evaluators have with, or all of us perhaps with methodology, methodologism. So that's why I think uh, it it has been first. I have to recognize that it's always been there. We're not you know inventing the wheel. People have always been talking about it because it's important. Evaluators themselves, I think, why from the perspective of evalu- evaluators we care about this because I think. At least I, 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 I believe this, that people who come to work as evaluators, um, they care about, you know, social betterment. They want to do something good. They, don't, they want to do change. This is something that I, I, I feel it's maybe common to many people who are working on this. But at the same time, uh, a lot of us also, as individuals and as our profession, and by the way, there was a great article in the last uh, American Journal of Evaluation uh, talks just about this, is that we have a great privilege. Even us uh, as evaluators working in developing countries, you know, we come to a a program. uh, In a way, we have this authority because we're evaluators. We're coming to make some uh, judgment about certain programs. So we have some privilege. And also people who come to evaluation come from, you know, educated background. So in a way, our privilege also perhaps puts a kind of ethical responsibility on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget that evaluators themselves are also systematic, and they have really good tradition of tools and uh, uh, tools that we can use in so many different ways. And I, I like to highlight this, and I really I think I'm very proud of the people who are leading the thought leaders of evaluation because. They're very strong supporters of this approach. Uh, in some fields, perhaps you don't feel the thought leaders in that field are so as so progressive. But in our field, for example, I can name several uh, authors and thought leaders uh, who are really uh, supporting this uh, importance of inclusion of social justice, inclusivity, uh, climate uh, change, and inequality crisis. And finally, so maybe I'm here mentioning two things, like about the evaluators themselves, but about the world we live in. But at the same time, the world we live in, it's also the scary 
effects around us. And we live not only now that we're talking about an epidemic that in just a, a few weeks scared so many people around the world, but uh, the environmental uh, crisis that we, and biodiversity, not only environmental biodiversity uh, crisis that we are facing. And there are, in a way, attack from outside evaluation, but from outside science, from some politicians, to the whole idea of facts and truth. So we feel ourselves like we, in, in a way, because our job is facts and truth, <laughs> truth and knowledge, that uh, that we have to fight for, for the importance of this objectivity and facts and truth, but also because the world is full of injustice, that we want to... To, to be agents of change for that, uh, to advocate for justice. So there are a lot of interesting, uh, interesting uh, factors about us as being evaluators that make us, in a way, concerned about this, uh, these issues. And the second thing, the, the environment by which we live, the whole world where we live, we live, where it is very, you know, it's becoming more, less equitable every day. One percent of the world population owns as the Next, the 40, 47, I think, or almost 50% of the population, you basically have 10 men in the world who have more money and more resources than 50% of the, the rest of the population. So this is where we are doing business. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's so much there um, to, to draw upon. Um, and I really appreciate you uh, also lifting up um, that this isn't new. Um, that's something I definitely try to hold on to a lot. Um, and I, that I feel like on one hand, yes, there's definitely, um, a, a shift in where we are having these conversations and how many people are having these conversations and how these conversations are being received and, um, sort of taken more seriously by, the the mainstream of evaluation maybe is how I would frame it. Like it feels like there's like like an increased sort of um, acceptance by a wider number of evaluators that this is important for us to be talking about. Um, although I do see backlash. I don't know. And there's almost always, you know, some one person in like on the eval talk, that giant um, listserv who will push back on like, and it'll be like one person, but you know, there will be someone who'll be like, oh, we're getting too politically correct or we're getting off, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about this or this is, um, and, but then you'll have like half a dozen people come back with really thoughtful, beautiful, compassionate responses of like, hey, actually this is why this is important. But yeah, naming of the work of Ernest House and we'll, we'll um, link all of this in our show notes as well. Um, and the, the people who have been um, doing this work for a really long time, I think the um, culturally relevant evaluation and assessment um, group down, who are based out of Chicago. Um, I love, we've talked about the Korea conference a couple times on this podcast now. I, I hope I get to go. I hope it's not canceled. Uh, this, I think it's in September, uh, this fall. Um, I'm really looking forward to going back and being with that group. To me, that's sort of the group, one of the groups that's been, I, I sort of say like the, the old school social justice evaluators who have been holding this down for decades doing this work, producing the the practice and the theory and the literature. And it's sort of like now there's a time, there's a moment where those of us who are newer, I always feel weird about this whole, like, I know technically by the eval youth definition, I actually still count as a young and emerging evaluator, mm-hmm. but I have a lot yeah. of feelings about that. And like, <laughs> what does it mean to be, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I totally do feel young. Other times I'm like, I'm literally growing my hair out right now. So people can see that I have gray in it so that, they will take me more seriously and I will take me more seriously. <laughs> um, but like, I feel like I also feel this sense of like, I've been really, um, I've definitely been getting more vocal myself about my own um, activist leanings and roots. Um, that was something that when I was a student always felt very separate. Like I was in a lot of activist space, you know, doing this reading. A lot of it, there is a lot of literature out there. There's a lot of scholarly activist research out there, but there's also just a lot of people who've been writing blog posts, um, having conversations, being, you know, people working and organizing and activism who 
are producing incredible knowledge and sharing incredible knowledge, but not sharing it in ways that are academically recognized. So as a student, I always felt very limited in my ability to say, bring that into my research. Um, and I think that's something that's really important to notice that these conversations are happening all over the place. I do want them to happen in academic conferences and, and publications. And we'll also share that. I, I think I know the article you're talking about in AGE, the American Journal of Evaluation that was talking about evaluators, not just thinking, needing to think about like, needing to think about our own privilege and how we're walking um, into spaces. So we'll, we'll link that into in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, just recognizing that this knowledge is all over the place, um, it coming in lots of different forms. We need to think about how we are. I think we really need to think about like how we judge what knowledge is valid and not and who is worth listening to and not. I think that's part of the equity conversation. And I also feel that even as I've been nervous about being more and more open, um, and about my politics and where I stand. And as a, you know, queer and trans person, <laughs> you know, these, this is all very personal for me as well. Um, it's, it's not just something that happens to other people. It's definitely part of my life. It affects me. It affects my social network. Um, and it would, even if I like, it affects me just because I'm a human being connected to other human beings. And I, but I just feel like I've been received really well. I feel like, in fact, I've had people come up to me and say, wow, it's so cool that you're talking about this, or wow, I wish I felt as comfortable talking about this. Um, to which I say, anyone who's thinking like, man, should I be, just try, just just put yourself out there and start trying. And if you have something to say, try saying it. <laughs> um, it doesn't ever feel less scary. I think with the with the pushback though, from, from some people, I, I don't necessarily th- see this as a, something negative. Uh, Sometimes you have, uh, in every field, you know, you need some people to challenge some ideas uh, that the field has and people thought about. I, I think most of the time also those pushbacks come from from people who, for example, advocate for no, we are we should be rigorous. Um, we have to use methodology. So in a way, they, they will allow you to, to highlight why it's important not to be methodologically uh, blind as well. I mean, as all of us as well, when we go and evaluate a project or a program, we will, we will have to think about, am I really, I should be here an activist or should also give my uh, opinion as an evaluator who has a certain methodology that I am using? I think it's also a struggle for us because, um, you know, I've done a couple of webinars about the topic and presentations and always some somebody says, but I also want to be objective as an evaluator. I should not have my opinion. And I like to hear that because I think it's what people think. But in my view that, you know, you never actually as an evaluator just giving facts. You always given your opinion. Even when you do a survey, you analyze it in a way, you know, as much as objectivity you use, there is always your, your uh, the, the way how you analyze the data, how, how you collected the data, who you collected the, the data from. So it's just to, to, to think about beyond just, uh, you know, I, am, I should be completely objective and methodologically rigorous because context matters, as you said, Caroline. And, and it is very important that we, we highlight this. Uh, I think uh, it's, it's also that uh, knowledge in a way and how we, we treat it in evaluation. Um, there's great writing in evaluation theory, but I think there's not so much as well discussion uh, about about these areas. How do we obtain knowledge and be objective, but at the same time marry that with being inclusive and equ- uh, equity-oriented? Uh, I, I, I think I, I don't claim that I read all the main books about evaluation theory. I'm still learning. I'm, I'm reading all the time to learn more. And I, there are so many resources. But still, this area I feel that maybe I did not read enough about or I did not see explained to people in a very good way uh, still. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I do agree with you that it's gaining more momentum. It's gaining more discussions. And I always hope that we will have other voices that will say, no, we have to do this, we have to do that, because I think it's also an evaluation we have to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know evaluation theory that well myself, honestly, or at least not to the extent of having a PhD in the subject or anything like that. But I think this part of it is just coming in and saying, you know, here's who I am and here's the perspectives I'm bringing and even here's maybe where my biases are at. 
but at the same time, you know, these are the methods I'm using and here's, here's um, what I'm willing to, like, I, I can bring this forward and be challenged on it for sure. And uh, just going back to what you were saying earlier too, around um, the value of having uh, people bring up uh, contrarian opinions or bring up different perspectives. I mean, you sometimes, and going uh, to what Carolyn was saying about the eval talk or other similar listservs, uh, sometimes you see people who are saying something like, you know, why are we talking about this political stuff here? And you can tell that part of it, of their rationale, maybe is to shut down the conversation. It's maybe making them feel uncomfortable or they, um, it's bringing up different ideas. But sometimes you do have people who are legitimately curious and it brings up a different way of, of speaking about that. And actually, I was just reading this morning, um, I can't remember the person's name, but we'll include the uh, um, include some of the, the links in the show notes. But uh, an epidemiologist, I believe, or a public health figure, was um, had a paper out the, yesterday or the day before, questioning all the social distancing, all of the um, all these kind of uh, measures that are happening around the world right now, saying we don't have the data to know whether this is actually a good approach to use or not. This may be more harmful than. Um, then what's good? And then someone responded to that saying like, well, based on the limited evidence we do have, we need to be doing this. Like it's, it, we may not have a perfect decision. And then of course, there's a lot of other people responding to that. And the, and, and the whole point is that it, the, per, the first person succeeded in terms of just sparking conversation and everyone seems to agree, yeah, we need to do more testing. We need more data, uh, but there's things we can do in the meantime. So um, I think that's, that's part of the picture as well. We need to be able to have these conversations that may be harder to have maybe these days now, but at the same time, we maybe are freed from some of the normal meetings we're normally having, and we can invite people to come onto podcasts instead of have these conversations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is all really, um, that's a really great point. And, and um, thank you both for going into that and, and re-emphasizing um, this. This is actually why this is the argument for why diversity is so important um, because when we are dealing with these really complex um, shifting situations where, you know, the uh, Halil, you were talking about not having some of the theory in this background and I have felt the same way. I've really been trying to find like what, how can I sort of wrap my head around understanding this? And, and just recently I was reading some really, a couple of really, really interesting papers um, talking about objectivity um, to the point of actually making me like objectivity again, um, <laughs> because it re because they reframed what objectivity means. And one of the papers um, is about um, it's a, from a um, indigenous Hawaiian scholar, and I just pulled it up so I can say uh, her name is uh, Manulani Aluli Meyer, Doctor Manulani Aluli Meyer, and the paper is called "Changing the Culture of Research: An Introduction to the Triangulation of Meaning." And I'm still absorbing this paper and what it talks about, but she positions objectivity within a triangulation where objectivity is, she goes back to empiricism and it's the body knowledge. It's what we actually can see and feel and sense and take in. Um, that's really what objectivity is about. It's like, what are the facts that I know that I'm like, I'm sitting on a couch. I'm talking to two people. Um, I can, you know, there's a, there's a fireplace in front of me. Um, and then, but we, what we do is we, we have that, that sort of sensory, factual, and empirical knowledge. And then we connect that also to the second point of the triangle she brings up is um, the mind knowing, the subjective experience, um, the interpretation that we layer onto that, um, which is always subjective. The moment we start interpreting something, um, we make it into, so the, the fact that I'm, I'm sitting on a couch that has a particular frame of reference for me. Um, I know that it's my, it's my roommate's couch, so I'm extra careful not to eat food on it. Um, and um, I have a, a, an understanding that the space I'm in is a comfortable space. I'm in my home. Like these are sort of like the meanings and attachments and layers. And, and someone else in this, in this room would have a different interpretation around it because they have different knowledge of it. And then the third thing she triangulates and this, this one, I, I'm still learning about, I'm still trying to figure out, but she talks about spirit knowing, which is more to the, the, the larger cultural, um, whether it's a spirituality or maybe like a collective unconscious kind of thing. But the idea is not one of these types of knowing being better than another type of knowing. 
that if we only ever use one of those types of knowing, that's where we get into trouble. It's the idea that we need to triangulate because that's how you find things through triangulation. We know that we talk about that a lot in evaluation. So it's not that objectivity is good or bad. It's not like, oh yes, we, you know, that's the best way of knowing, or that's a terrible way of knowing we need to throw it out. It's what is it balanced with? And then the other paper that has really been informing me, and I think speaks to what you've been talking about around, um, you know, having different perspectives and, and what different people are bringing and asking questions and having those conversations is um, the idea of positional objectivity, um, which uh, is, a, I found this paper because I, I was having a conversation with someone and that term, we kind of came like, sort of thought of that term, just combining those two possibilities. And like, oh, I wonder if someone's already come up with that and looked it up. And sure enough, <laughs> 1993, uh, you know what? I can be in better company. 1993, Amartya Sen has written a paper on positional objectivity, which I've been tracking down and reading. And she talks about exactly what you'd imagine it to be. You know, the fact that we have, we can, we have objective experiences. We do have real objective experiences, but they are limited based on our position. So, um, the, one of the examples I, I was using in the conversation that I was having a friend where we talked about this was uh, having um, an experience where I was uh, on a bus with a, with a partner, um, noticing how upset my partner looked and feeling like, oh no, they're mad at me because I could see the weight that their face was scrunched up and their body was hunched and I could read all the signs of someone being upset and interpreted it as they were mad at me and got very upset. Um, so I had that objective you know, knowledge and I interpreted it, put my layer of subjective um, interpretation on it and then later found out that, no, they were upset because there was someone behind me where I couldn't see who was, you know, being shitty to them for being trans. Um, so that positional objectivity of like what I can see, it, it matters, but I can only see so much and I'm going to see it based on where I'm sitting. And I think that's true in terms of like the literal physical spaces that we're in. Like you might see something that someone behind you doesn't see um, or facing the other direction doesn't see or sense. I mean, I'm, I'm really privileging the visual sense here, but any of our senses, um, but also who we are. So the fact that I walk through the world as a white person, as a settler Canadian with a particular kind of background that I walk through the world as queer um, that I work. Through. So I will notice things and that, that I will pick up on things that, um, that I realize are, are directed towards me in a particular way that if I'm out with a friend who is straight, they might not notice. Um, or, but if I'm also walking in the world as a white person, there's going to be things that I don't notice that, you know, if I'm walking with my friend who's black, they'll notice because we have different positional experiences. And I think that's something we don't um, take into account in enough as evaluators. And there are lots of, uh, there, I will say there are lots of evaluators who've also talked about, yeah, we need to be aware of who we are and how we show up in situations and the fact that, um, how we show up influences how people respond to us. Andy was talking about that last week, um, uh, in our last episode about how, when the, when the, the white nice lady evaluators were showing up, um, in, in the, the communities, the African communities he was working in, people knew what to do. <laughs> because it's like oh yeah that's what they're interested in they want this kind of information so we'll act this way and respond to them in this way um and i sorry i realized that i just went on like another really long ramble here um but like this like this is the kind of um conversation that i'm really hungry for as someone who is trying to work in a way that is in service of equity and justice without the idea that we are sacrificing methodology and rigor to do that. Like, I do not believe those things are in opposition. I think there is rigor and methodology to this way of working. And I also know that I'm having to teach myself that, how to do that, because how, what I was taught rigor meant and what, what methods that I was taught to use as being rigorous methods aren't often helpful for the actual situations I'm in. So I'm having to learn on the fly um, and from whatever guidance and mentorship I can find, <laughs> Unfortunately, there is some out there, a different way of doing things. But that doesn't mean that the work isn't rigorous. It just means that we are learning what rigor looks like in this kind of work. Exactly. I, really, thank you for, for that. I think it's, uh, it's very important what you said. And I just kept thinking when, when you're saying about, uh, uh, about the different types of objectivity. And it's just in our tool um, box as evaluators, the whole notion or concept of evaluative thinking. Because it really relates to, in my opinion, at least what, to what you said, in the sense that we, why we say eval, evaluative thinking, you know, in, in this cognitive process where we really 
uh, embrace uh, inquisitiveness and the uh, importance of evidence. But at the same time, we identify assumptions, we pursue, you know, kind of deeper understanding and reflect on those uh, understandings in order to reach some maybe conclusions or findings that really inform the the policy or the intervention that we're working on. So it, I like it and I usually as well, even when I talk about evaluation and activism or social justice, I also always refuse to this uh, concept because I think it digs down, you know, digs deeper than just uh, the mere objectivity in the sense that, you know, this is objective, this is not, although there's really a spectrum of, you know, how objective or subjective something is. And we tend, as human beings, I think, to make everything right or wrong, left or right, black or white, you know. So there's always a spectrum as well of, of different ob- objectivity. And, you know, just think about when we go to evaluate any project or any intervention, Sometimes, you know, we we go there and maybe, you know, by being completely, I know that you said even objectivity itself, how define it, we have to rethink that. But in the traditional sense of objectivity, if you have some evaluation questions and you go blindly answer these questions without paying attention to inclusivity, uh, social justice, you know, the, some of the program participants or non-participants concern in the community. Maybe you are doing actually more harm than good. I don't know who said, um, I think, again, it's House, when he said uh, that if you, you could be an evaluator asked by Eichmann how to to improve the gas chambers uh, effectiveness, you know? And if you go as a blindly just to the the, uh, the the good of the project or the intervention, you will go and evaluate and see what is he needed uh, to make those gas chambers, unfortunately, more effective. But if you are conscious of what are the, also here, part of the privilege we're talking about, what are the consequ- consequences of our work as evaluators? Because again, with, res- with privilege comes responsibility, but also a lot of consequences. Because people, in a way, or, or project, and you know, in general, we are taking let me say this, not always, but sometimes, you know, seriously, because people say, okay, this person comes with with tools that she knows and can give me some good advice and recommendation. I trust them if, if the whole evaluation thing is done for learning, not only for accountability, but even for that. So we have a lot of privilege in this sense and a lot of power. So when we go and, you know, evaluate just based on this blind objectivity, maybe we're harming the project itself. Because if it's more inclusive, for example, it would be much more effective. Uh, So that's where I come back always to the whole idea and notion of evaluative thinking and really digging deep uh, when you go and do a project or a program, just so much more than the evaluation question that you see in your hand. And sometimes, by the way, I, I, I see it. When you work hard and do something and you go and really speak to the commissioner or the client you're working with and approach them in this convincing language as well. It's very important. Maybe something will come up in our conversation, but also, I mean, as an activist, as an evaluator, you also have to have the language that people receive the information you give them. And you have to be a negotiator. As we always learn evaluation, you have to negotiate what your findings. You have to say how it's this question, not in the TOR, but this could help your organization a lot be more exclusive. And when it's more inclusive, it would be stronger. Um, but I completely agree about those basic things in evaluation and that we have to, to be very reflexive about and always think and always reconstruct because this is how our field and our practice will, will go step ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that reminds me of uh, our again our previous conversation with uh, Nora, Nora, Andy, and uh, and Chris, and we talked about how evaluation and I think the evaluative thinking comes into that as well. Uh, we 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 introduce uncertainty into a situation. We can unsettle systems, and um, what you're just saying right now, Halil, also reminds me of 
concept I learned uh, more related to community-based research, but I think applies to evaluation as well. Uh, learned this during my master's uh, education, uh, the concept of a critical friend that we come in, uh, we're walking with an organization or a program or initiative or, or whatever it is. Um, we're not directly part of it, but we're we're being a, a friend to it. We're we're supporting it for at least part of its journey. At the same time, we're willing to to call people out. We can say like, "Hey, have you thought about this?" Or you know, you're saying that equity is an important uh, uh, value that you practice, but the evidence that we're collecting is calling that into question, or what I'm seeing is calling that into question. And it's not to to criticize or shut down, but it's to uh, it's to help them reach their ideals and. Uh, it also reminds me, uh, Chris Lisi had that great comic from a AEA conference a couple of years back, and I keep referring to it, but the pragmatic dreamer that we as evaluators, we're coming in because we believe so strongly in in the idea of an initiative or, um, or in this case, maybe more broadly, we're, we believe strongly in this idea of creating something better, of supporting social justice, supporting equity, that... And the best way we know how to support that is to identify where our efforts aren't reaching their potential, that that we are falling flat and say, okay, this is not working, but let's let's try something better. And hopefully this one will be a little bit better, but we can contribute to making that better. Yeah. Yeah. I think the example that always, um, or has resonated with me, I think it might've even been a couple of years now that I read, it was a CBC, a Canadian Broadcasting Company um, article. It was about... Um, the the 60s scoop is the name of something that happened in Canada and is in a lot of ways still happening. We've re, now recalled it the millennium scoop because it's there's another wave of it happening. And it refers to the um, removal of um, children from their families in indigenous communities and nations. Um, so a disproportionate um, removals for, you know, ostensibly welfare reasons of like okay we're you know taking children um out of dangerous situations is was the was the argument um that was used to remove a lot of children and place them into care um and it just was enacted it was a, it was a policy so the article was about how the the person who designed the policy never intended for that to be the impact of course like that's what a lot of the you know um a lot of the most harmful, damaging, destructive things that we do as human beings are not done with sort of mustache twirling evilness. Um, they are done with thoughtlessness. They are done with a failure to question um, the implications and, and sources of what we're doing. I mean, the fact is, you know, there was a lot of unquestioned um, you know, white supremacist ideology and, and settler colonial beliefs that underlied those decisions. It wasn't just an accident. I don't mean to say like, oh, it was unintentional and it was an accident and oh, it just happened to work out that way. There were there were definitely things that happened that influenced what what came from that. But people weren't consciously saying, how do we do the most that we can to hurt uh, indigenous children and families and communities? That wasn't, no one wrote that down as a, as a program mission. Um, but, and so when I read this article, I thought, yeah, so if I were the evaluator who was in, responsible for evaluating this policy or this intervention, it wouldn't have, it would not have come to me. They wouldn't have framed it to me as like, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to hurt people. Um, no, they would say, we're trying to help people. We are trying to, you know, keep kids safe by putting them in situations we think will be better for them. Um, and which is not absolute, just absolutely not what happened. You know, the, the, the 60s scoop, uh, we've now, I think, I think we've uh, apologized for it. Oh God, I've, I've lost track of all the things that we have and have not apologized for and where we have and have not paid things out. I think, um, yeah, this is again, part of Canada's uh, track record as a, as a colonizing nation. Um, I just, I, I, when I read that article, I realized I needed to take that into myself. Like, and some, you know, in some moment I'm going to be facing a program or a policy or, or an evaluation situation where I'm going to have to really be asking myself, who is this serving? Who is this really serving? What are the assumptions that are underlying this? What, what is the, the ethical framework of this, um, 
of this work because I do always come in wanting to work with people and I and I I'm always working with people who are who are trying to make the world better um but we really need that deep questioning of um you know what what do we think makes the world better and and what are the the likely implications of what we're doing what are the things we're seeing what are the things we're not seeing and that I feel like that questioning always starts with myself like I won't see those kinds of implications um if I'm coming from a, from the same mental framework that, um, like, you know, of, you know, this is, this is how things are supposed to work. Um, you know, this is, um, what values are important, um, or, or what matters. If I'm coming from the same value framework that I'm not questioning in myself, that I'm not, I get, it goes back to Hilda, you were talking about being reflexive. Um, then I'm not going to see those same, uh, issues um, in whatever programs or policies or services that I'm evaluating. And again, I think that also, again, speaks to the really, we really need to think about the evaluation profession and who is in the evaluation profession and how narrow or wide or diverse are we in terms of our perspectives and what we think of as being good. Um, because evaluation is about making judgments about what's good and what is good, um, is a very contextual perspective driven question it's not a universal good it, it's contextual yeah wow those the, just to to come back you know i'm, I'm taking notes i love this uh, discussion there are a lot of things that you know i'm sure after our recording i will be thinking about and try to research more and understand more but i think uh, to the point Carolyn said, I have also something for very, I think uh, Brian said something very important. I'd like to comment on it. But I think you said two key words that they're, they're always buzzing when I'm working in evaluation. You know, first about the assumption. Uh, Sometimes as evaluator, and even one goes to say, oh, we have to, uh, to work a lot more on social justice consideration and everything. You know, somebody could say, or you could ask yourself, who are you to go tell people you should do this or that? I mean, there's some 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 sense of maybe you could think about it, or somebody could think about it as arrogance. Who do you have the the monopoly over what is good? Um, that's why assumptions became very important. Is to understand what kind of assumption a group of you know the evaluant, the one the the thing that you're evaluating. What are their theory of change? What are their assumptions they put in place? But more important, I think, like anything in, in, in our society, is to have to look at power. Because without power analysis, without seeing where is power, where is the disadvantage, where is the advantage, then you lose it a little bit. You lose this moral compass you have. For me, at least, I think always, since I was, uh, you know, always working in evaluation, I think, where is the power in um, in, in certain program I'm working on. Where is the lack of power? Where is, should be power and there is not? For example, also actually Donna Mertens, she talks, uh, she writes a lot about social justice and, justice and transformational evaluation. And she worked a lot on projects uh, working with deaf people. And she simply put it, she says, when I go to a project or a program that is about deaf people, and I sit down, the first question I ask, where are deaf people on the table? If they're not, you know, that's that's very important if you are working with you know with people who are not on the table uh, so the whole the whole because life you know i think power is very important uh, evaluators also should pay attention to to this aspect it helps them maybe see where is justice and what is not just when when they analyze this maybe it's not perfect but it's helpful and the other thing you also highlighted and i really appreciate and i think it's important is Looking at those unintended consequences. I have so much respect, for example, for, again, like Michael Kumbatan, he's writing a lot. He focuses a lot on, you know, focusing on unintended uh, con uh, uh, consequences because a lot of evaluators, I feel, I work, I was lucky since I started maybe 10 years ago working with evaluators come and, you know, they just work on the, the, the goals and objectives of the program. But I think always I found very interesting what is, that the program, you know, done to the community or to the uh, to the society without thinking they did it. 
And it's very important to analyze this. It will help us, I think, understand more. But we always, I think, in my opinion, we struggle with this ethical framework. What is universal and what is not universal? We might not have a perfect answer. Uh, but at the same time, there are still universal things. When you go and work in a program and you don't see um, any consideration for gender, gender equity, then if it's all female or it's all male, you know, in certain project that talks about uh, gender empowerment, the first thing I will ask, I say, where is the other gender? Why is not here? Why gender issues are not considered? Why are we holding focus group discussions in the time where men go to the office or women are, you know, uh, working in the field or working in the office or the, the fathers are with their sons. You know, so it's very important to ask these questions. So this is one side. And to Brian, I think you said, you know, very important point about this critical friend. But I also want to take it in, a, in the sense that about this community of practice. And when I talk about activism sometimes, people, I think in a way, just see it as activism when you are doing evaluation per se as if when you're doing you know the the research for your evaluation or and collecting the data and analysis but i think as evaluators we're much more than just you know we're not only evaluators when we are doing an evaluation per se in our life i think uh, for example let's say in the community of practice where i belong the i belong to a few a few i i, I feel but uh, evalmina the evaluation network of the mina region uh, this is, I really care about this this network. It's very important for me that it's more inclusive, that you have people from uh, different gender, different background, different ethnicities. And I think, one, for example, we just had the, the 2020 conference uh, just in February. I think this last time it was maybe perhaps the most inclusive since we started like 10 years ago. And because the people were responsible for this for this version of the conference, they wanted this inclusivity. They wanted that people with disability, uh, people with different gender, people with different background, with you know all types of differences we have, that they are on board, that they come and we hear their voices. So even in the community of practice, in practice, it's also very important to have this activism um, part. And I think maybe, maybe, as evaluators, we have advantage in this sense because if we're talking about a project or a program and we say, oh, we see the long term is like this and the sustainability like this, also with our society. I mean, I didn't do the analysis, but if I look, for example, at the tweets now of evaluators, I see a lot of them. I've been reading a lot of them these days. There are a lot of, you know, focus on what the, the implication of, of this corona uh, virus epidemic on, on our field, but also on, on people in general. There are a lot of analysis about how it's going to shape our society. There is always concern, at least, let's say not expertise per se, but concern about the long-term effect of any uh, thing we do and its implication on the diverse uh, segments of the society we have. So that's why evaluators are not only evaluators when they are working on evaluations per, per se, but when they're sitting on committees on different things, when they're working on uh, with things with the in, with their uh, families and their community, and and so we're not just that role. We have different roles that I think we should be also thinking about when we're doing our our activism, quote, quote unquote. Yeah, we don't get to take off the evaluator hat. I think it's kind of uh, I think it's yeah. kind of good on. So <laughs> just it might not actually be a hat. It might just be. <laughs> <laughs> it might be just be that we are we are completely coherent, integrated people who have just multifaceted lives and experiences, and that these things are all connected. Um, yeah, um, I I feel like we could I feel like we could have this conversation for a very long time, and I would love every second of it. Um, and and it also feels like so yeah. Um, that's, I want this to be a conversation that is ongoing. I think it is a conversation that's ongoing. Um, and and yeah. even even as this episode wraps up, certainly um, there's just a lot here. And, and I hope um, that the people who are listening are, are I'm, I know I'm taking notes and I, and you said you're taking notes. So I hope that uh, it's as, as 
um, inspiring and informative for um, everyone who's listening. And I'm just thinking by way, by way of wrapping up, is there, oh, is there something that we, each of us might want to offer um, as a, I don't know, just like as, as a, as a nugget or a bit of wisdom or a takeaway that we have from this or an advice or hope or question. I'm really, I'm, I'm going wide on this, but is there something, (laughs) (laughs) um, is there something that we want to leave our, our listeners with? From my perspective, I just maybe to share that uh, exactly what you said, Caroline, that is, I'm very glad for, for this conversation and I see it as a conversation and I hope that our field will embrace more of discussion. I know, for example, now in EES, the European Evaluation Society conference in September, if it happens and not canceled or postponed, everything seems canceled or postponed these days, but if it happened, there are a couple of panels about this, actually with some of the most prominent evaluators actually talking about uh, uh, activism and evaluation and the role of young evaluators and senior evaluators and taking different perspective. Uh, the EAA, there are also, uh, I know, a few people working on, on having discussion about this for next year. So it's not only last year that it's focused on this issue, but it seems it's it's going to be a discussion. And I would love to see that this discussion continues and we embrace more opinions and uh, and how to also find ways that since it's like an idea of 30 years but did not really kick off so strongly in the practice itself that how we can find a group of people that can work more on it to institutionalize maybe and or take the the whole discussion a little bit uh, forward and i say i think not because of my role with evalue i have a lot of faith in young and emerging evaluators who who can really lead in in this aspect for so many of the factors I mentioned in the beginning. And by the way, just to leave with this, you know, evaluate definition of young evaluator is someone who is uh, under 35, or if you have less than five years of experience, no matter how old you are, this is young and emerging evaluator. So it doesn't matter that I have gray hair. I'm still a young and emerging evaluator. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, I think I have a little bit more gray hair and I'm already, I'm already, you know, not a young and emerging evaluator anymore, I think. Yes. (laughs) I was just going to thank you so much for, for giving me this opportunity and for the great discussion. I always, you know, listening to the, the different episodes. Uh, I really enjoyed the discussion and, you know, not as a listener, also when I converse with you, it was a, <laughs> a great learning experience as well. So thank you for that. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful to have you. Yeah, to have you on the podcast and, and thank you. And and I know you shared, you just shared now some some conferences coming up um, and you've been talking about Evaluate. Is there anything else that you want uh, our listeners to know about um, or have an eye for, eye out for? Uh, yeah, basically, it's if 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 uh, we have young and emerging evaluators listening and they like to learn more about Evaluate, we're very active on social media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, but we have also website. Please, uh, if you are senior evaluator, we know we have the global mentoring program uh, that will st- start in a few months as well. Uh, actually, from North America, especially. Uh, we don't have so many mentors from there. We always have very few applications for mentors and mentees. And now we're in the third phase. So maybe in a couple of months, we'll be announcing. And if people want to mentor uh, young and emerging evaluators, that would be great. And finally, we also have um, uh, the Youth Summit. Uh, it's going to happen uh, along with the um, uh, Global Evaluation Forum, the fourth evaluation forum in November in Mexico. And I hope also that people will will join this discussion, discussion leading to this, but also will be there at the, at the Global Evaluation Forum. Again, we, we see some uh, evaluators from North America, but not so many in such uh, perhaps a global evaluation events uh, beyond AEA. So, <laughs> you know, in, in the European conference, yes, but not in the Middle East, for example, in in Asia and other conferences. So I hope it will be a good chance to connect with many there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if I can speak on behalf of North American evaluators, I think I can 
claim to do that in this moment. Uh, it's maybe 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 recent uh, happenings have have hopefully convinced us more than ever that we are part of a global uh, community. Mm. That we're not separate. We're not isolated. And uh, yeah, to to take some of these opportunities to jump in and participate in in other spaces than the ones that we're most used to. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you again, Halil, for for joining us today. Um, I think if there's a theme so far for our 2020 podcast is that uh, is that the, these are infinite uh, conversations. So we're not saying really goodbye here. We're just taking a, a bit of a break, really, until we have a chance to chat again. So thank you. And yeah, definitely lots to take away from this conversation. And I look forward to seeing uh, what conversations will be continuing in the future. Thank you, Brian and Caroline, and maybe hopefully to connect with you as well in AA this, this year, or I'm sure we will meet again uh, for sure, but I will keep following your great podcast and uh, different episodes with uh, great colleagues and evaluators every, everywhere. All the best for the podcast and everything that you do. Thank you so much. To you as well. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Eval Cafe. Thank you to all our listeners. Please check out the rest of our episodes on Pinecast, iTunes, or Google Play or by going through our website, evalcafe.wordpress.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at evalcafe. And if you want to drop us a line, you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for poppers and prosecco or intro theme, and dispersion relation or outro, as well as to Tim at tabletopaudio.com for the lively cafe ambiance in our intro. 